This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. Chapter 6, Foreign Aid Increased foreign aid is imperative. The developing countries simply do not have the resources. Outside help is essential. Ronald Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, page 218 and following. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your beast and in the produce of your ground in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Deuteronomy 28, 11, and 12. The biblical form of government is extremely limited. The state may not tax oppressively, that is, beyond the biblical allowance, nor may it engage in the theft of inflation by debasing the currency or expanding credit. It follows that the state cannot deal in foreign aid since it has no lawful means to do so. Nevertheless, Ronald Sider demands a foreign policy that unequivocally sides with the poor. In the face of the Bible's clear limits on government, how can he take such a position? After all, he says, following biblical principles on justice in society is the only way to lasting peace and social harmony for all human societies. One would think such an endorsement of the Bible's program might lead Sider to actually take it seriously. But he has a way out. He claims that the Bible does not directly answer these questions. Oh, yes, it does. The trouble is that Sider doesn't like the Bible's answers. In discussing foreign aid, Sider sets up an interesting dichotomy. Should the U.S. provide other countries with bombs or bread? That's clever, but false. Those aren't the only two choices. The right answer is, don't give either one. There is no biblical law for either one. No government willing to abide by biblical limits will be able to afford to give anything away. Again, biblical law is not enough for cider. Sider attempts to frighten us into joining his campaign for unjust aid. The opening pages of his book contain some chilling futuristic speculations in which the Indian Prime Minister threatens to blow up Boston and New York with nuclear explosives in retaliation for not receiving U.S. aid. Responsible people consider even this horrifying prospect a genuine possibility. In times of severe famine, countries like India will be sorely tempted to try nuclear blackmail. Perhaps, 
but Sider is stacking the deck considerably. He implies that the United States is evil and heartless, preoccupied with other concerns, unwilling to comply with just trade patterns. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister is stricken with compassion for the hungry, pleads to deaf ears, and becomes desperate. She really doesn't like the idea, but the momentum of events could force her to explode one of the bombs. Terrible retaliation might follow, but she is desperate. In sum, we are the guilty ones for not dispensing government aid, while this potential mass murderer deserves our pity. She was forced to give the order, because our program was insufficient. A little was given, but it was never enough. Nor will any amount of aid ever be enough for those whose envy of the rich is so vicious that they can contemplate the slaughter of millions. God commands the poor to call upon him for deliverance, when instead they are ready to destroy those who fail to share sufficiently, they are not to be pitied. Envy cannot be appeased. Modest proposals? In addition to the usual methods of foreign aid, Ronald Sider proposes two measures which should receive particular attention in this discussion, tariffs and commodity agreements. I don't wish to sound repetitious, but it must be stated again. These policies are immoral. The state has no biblical right to intervene in the market system or to interfere with trade. Again, I am not speaking of the sale of innately biblically defined immoral goods or services. Sider's proposals are in absolute defiance of God's word. And because these practices are forbidden by God, they don't work. Note, I am not saying they are wrong because they inevitably fail. I am saying they fail because they violate biblical principles. This is God's word, and it moves according to his laws. Tariffs. These are protective barriers to trade which, are con which a country erects in order to guard its own industries from external competition. The idea is that, for example, our television manufacturers will lose their jobs if cheaper and better sets from Japan are available to the American consumers. The American people will stop buying the more expensive American-made TVs in favor of the imported ones. This will mean fewer jobs in the TV industry and hence rising unemployment and poverty in our country. Thus, to protect our people, we force importers to pay a tax on their manufacturers which will raise the price of their goods to a level at which our industries can successfully compete. And, of course, we Americans firmly believe in competition. We need protection from free trade. This is merely a bundle of fallacies. First, a tariff is theft, since it confiscates the property of others, strangers among others, in the name of protection for ourselves. Breaking God's law will lead to national judgment, not higher employment. Second, it steals from the consumers who are forced to pay higher prices for goods and must therefore reduce their spending on other products if they wish to buy a protected item. 
Third, it turns trade into warfare regarding foreign producers as enemies against whom we must defend ourselves, thus creating not free competition but a dangerous conflict which has historically led to actual war again and again. Fourth, it does not keep Americans employed. The tariff adds to consumer cost, and many will forego the purchase of any TV, which will bring about unemployment in the industry anyway. Fifth, it subsidizes inefficiency by prohibiting competition. Free trade means that a producer must strive constantly to make his product better or cheaper than those of his competitors. Free trade, repre- free trade presents consumers with goods that are continually improving. Sixth, free trade does not ultimately produce unemployment at all. The less efficient producers will be forced out of a market in which they are doing poorly, but they will then turn their energies toward manufacturers which, will, which they can produce well And the consumer, having saved money from the lower cost of the Japanese TV, will be able to spend whatever is left over on another item. Also, Japanese buyers can now use American dollars to buy American products, soybeans, for example, or lumber. The same amount of money is spent, but now with more efficiency, greater diversity, higher productivity, no theft, and no warlike activity on the part of the state. Since governments presently control over 46% of international trade, Cider is correct. Tariffs and other import restrictions are still an essential part of today's unjust international economic order. The United States charges the highest tariffs on processed and manufactured goods from other countries. The results, unfortunately, is is to deprive countries of millions of extra jobs and billions of extra dollars from increased exports. If Sider had been concerned with biblical justice, he might have stopped there. But he is not interested in biblical justice. He is interested in the plunder of the rich. Thus, after calling for developed nations to end trade restrictions, he announces the following as necessary further steps. Developed nations will need to grant trade preferences to developing nations and also permit them to protect their infant industries with tariffs for a time. We'd better have guessed it. We'd never have guessed it, but Cider actually regards injustice as desirable, so long as it is the poor nations who are committing it. As we have seen in Proverbs 6, 30 and 31, the fact that a thief is starving does not change the fact that he stole and he must, he must make restitution for his theft. In contrast, Cider says that wrong is right when the oppressed do the oppressing. We can abolish the secular laissez-faire economics of the deist Adam Smith, who so effectively exploded the mercantilist fallacies of our predecessors. We can construct a new economics, an economics of compassion for the poor, and economics of the tender-hearted elimination of free trade, which is called theft. The argument that infant industries need tariff protection is false. If the new industries are productive, they won't need to steal to survive. 
If they are unproductive, they are unnecessary, and capital should be invested elsewhere. Without state aid, the new industry may not become the superpower overnight, but if it is really needed, if it is supplying consumers with demanded goods, it will grow as other businesses have. But protected industries have a way of never growing up, always dependent upon legal plunder. Tariffs bring nothing but subsidized irresponsibility and more poverty. Poverty caused by outright theft and by teaching the ethic of remaining an unproductive, irresponsible infant. Commodity Agreements The warfare mentality is exhibited in commodity agreements as well. These, like tariffs, are legally enforced price supports for certain goods, with the difference that these price levels are agreed upon on an international basis. The purpose of commodity agreements is to stabilize prices of primary products, raw materials and foodstuffs, exported by less developed countries to prevent devastating price fluctuations. CIDR approves of such controls because they mandate prices that are just. We should note, by the way, that the radical price fluctuations of 1974 to 75, mentioned in support of his thesis, would never have happened without government tinkering with the money supply in the first place, particularly from 1970 to 74. Price fluctuations are always an adjustment of the market to reality. As with other interventions into the market, commodity agreements are immoral. Instead of allowing prices to conform to the realities of the marketplace, and rather than tackling the main problem, which is government-produced inflation, state coercion is applied to enforce a just price. But just is supposed to mean justice, and justice is defined by God's law. The Bible does not set a just price for commodities. It prohibits fraud and coercion, and, sets it, and it sets the conditions in which the free market can operate. With statist economic regulations, men are not free to act. They become enslaved to the government, their whole futures tied to the decisions of planners and bureaucrats who act in their own self-interest as much as anyone else rather than to their responsible choices under God's law. Commodity agreements are theft. Let's consider an example using those bananas cider is so concerned about. Suppose an international agreement is reached to double the price of bananas exported from Central America. What would happen? Since the price cannot be legally lowered there is an immediate incentive for producers to produce bananas. Other countries, the Philippines for instance, would begin competing more heavily to obtain the new higher price for bananas. Competition would accelerate between growers in Central America as well, forcing the various governments to establish limits on acreage for each grower. On these smaller plots, agriculture intensifies with the use of more productive methods of cultivation, better irrigation and pest control, more fertilizer, etc., in order to obtain the largest possible yield. More is being produced than ever before, 
but the price cannot fall to conform to the surplus. The governments must now set marketing quotas for each grower and must purchase and store the surplus output. Bananas begin rotting by the ton in warehouses, yet the price remains inflexible. If the government does not buy or confiscate the surplus, black markets in bananas will arise around the world, as indeed they will anyway, requiring stern police state measures, spies, informers, fines, imprisonment, and perhaps executions. Meanwhile, banana consumers around the world have reduced their consumption. Somehow the government's have been unable to repeal that bothersome law of supply and demand that Adam Smith invented. The lower demand means an even greater surplus, which means the government must reduce the growers' marketing quotas. Banana producers are basking in the glow of higher prices, but they are making less money than they did before. They scramble to intensify farming methods to the maximum, and the surplus swells to gigantic proportions. The governments must build more warehouses, destroy more bananas, and hire more police to stamp out the black markets. Rents and leases of agricultural land have surged, increasing the cost of production. This causes riots. Fights break out between rival growers, some complaining that bananas of lower quality receive the same price of those of the highest quality. More and more growers are impoverished, except for those willing to take the risk of selling at an illegal but profitable price. Finally, to add to the misery of the third world, Ronald Sider publishes a new book demanding foreign aid to poor banana farmers in Central America. Direct Foreign Aid Because government foreign aid is prohibited by Scripture, many serious problems are inseparably linked to it. We will consider here the implications and results of such aid and then list the biblical alternatives. The Implications The most significant implication of foreign aid is externalism, the idea that economic progress can only be imposed on a culture from the outside. The poor are regarded as helpless in the face of their surroundings. Says P.T. Bauer, This suggestion reinforces the attitude widely prevalent in the underdeveloped world, that the opportunities and the resources for the economic advance of oneself or one's family have to be provided by someone else, by the state, by one's superior, by richer people, or from abroad. This attitude is in turn one aspect of the belief of the efficacy of external forces over one's destiny. In parts of the underdeveloped world, this attitude goes back for millennia and has been reinforced by the authoritarian tradition of that society. It is an attitude plainly unfavorable to material progress. Sider believes that outside help is essential. This externalist thesis is plainly untenable in view of the fact that all developed countries began as poor nations with the same basic economic conditions as the underdeveloped countries. 
Many societies benefited from foreign private investment, but that profit-seeking private investment came because foreigners saw the potential in the underdeveloped society. This society was not helpless. Again, we should note that the most important factor in development has been Christianity itself. Where the people have established the godly basis for progress in personal lives, social mores, and political freedoms, development will occur without government programs. If the people are not morally capable of progress, no amount of aid will produce it. The economic development requires a great deal more than money, a fact which is absolutely ignored by materialistic socialists. The Puritans progressed because of ethics, not grants. A stagnant culture needs the conditions which favor development, and money is the least of its worries. As Bauer says, If all conditions for development other than capital are present, capital will soon be generated locally or will be available on loan from the outside. A further implication of foreign aid is that a nation can benefit only at the expense of another. In this framework, the rich much, the rich much be, must be cap, decapitalized and impoverished in order to enrich the poor. Thus, instead of the idea that both parties profit from a free exchange of goods, a concept which aids progress and friendly relations, the notion is fostered that profit is poss- possible only through ripoffs. Inescapably, this produces a warfare mentality. A world immersed in the idea that material advance is to be made by plundering others will be a world at war. Results Although, as we have seen, government to government, bureaucracy to bureaucracy, foreign aid cannot change the real factors of productivity. I do not mean to give the impression that it has no results at all. It has three very important results. First, foreign aid produces irresponsibility and dependence. Capital is turned over to be spent by people who do not bear the cost. This creates waste. If you are spending your own money, you have an incentive to be careful and to make sure that it is invested in productive profitable enterprises. The executive with an unlimited expense account will be tempted to eat lavish dinners with the company money. He will use his own funds to save toward a new set of tires, reducing his personal spending in less important areas. Foreign aid beneficiaries are spending other people's money and thus much of it goes to prestigious and wasteful government projects such as universities that are not really needed. They produce professionals who are trained in non-existent technological fields and an increasing problem in underdeveloped countries is the high number of unemployed university graduates. Socialism being inherently rebellious morally 
wants the social rewards without the underlying base of gradual economic growth. The result is that socialist bureaucracies get everything backwards, imposing the fruit of generations of progress upon a society that is culturally unprepared for it. Sort of like giving light bulbs to a tribe a thousand miles away from a generator. Where biblical aid seeks to train men in responsible, future-oriented action, ungodly aid makes its recipients more helpless than ever. India is a case in point. Its large-scale trade deficits began after substantial foreign aid programs started in 1956 and have continued ever since. India has depended on foreign aid for so long that this dependence has come to be taken for granted. Indeed, the economic history of that country since about the mid-1950s has been one of progression from poverty to pauperism. Yet, it was an explicit objective of Indian planning to reduce or eliminate economic dependence. Second, foreign aid helps those who are better off rather than the poor. This astonishing fact must be thoroughly comprehended. Remember that tiny wealthy elite Cider speaks of? They, and not the poor, are the recipients of aid. Simply stated by Bauer, foreign aid is paid by governments to governments. Most of it never reaches the poor and is used by governments for projects that have nothing to do with getting food, such as expensive airlines or universities or government buildings. The situation is plainly not that there is not enough food for the subsistence of the existing population or populations. If, there were the, if this were the position, there could be no growth in numbers, much less a huge increase. If there is starvation in some underdeveloped countries, this must mean that part of the population cannot fend for itself, either because it lacks the ability to do so, or because it is prevented from doing so by institutional factors, such as organized barriers to entry into wage employment or restrictions on access to land. Apart from occasional ad hoc emergency measures, foreign aid is irrelevant to the relief of starvation. As we have argued, it benefits primarily the better-off sections of the populations in the recipient countries, and these sections are certainly not threatened by starvation. And it leaves very large, unaffected, the poorest, and most backward groups. Both the poorest sections of the urban and rural proletariat and also the primitive tribal and aboriginal societies who are most exposed to famine. As UCLA's black economist and former Marxist Thomas Sowell points out, similar problems afflict welfare programs in the United States. Despite the public image of a typical welfare recipient, as a black mother with a large brood, most welfare recipi 
recipients are neither black, Puerto Rican, nor Mexican-American. It is also worth noting that while government figures show that $11.4 billion would raise all the poor above the officially defined poverty level, in fact, more than $30 billion are spent on programs to get people out of poverty, and there are still more than 5 million families below the poverty level. Clearly, most of the money spent on the poor does not directly reach the poor, but is, is absorbed by the salaries of officials, staffs, consultants, and by other expenses of anti-poverty organizations. Third, foreign aid actually widens the gap between rich and poor nations. As we have seen, it inhibits those factors which would produce growth, for example, by creating dependence rather than responsibility. More than this, it encourages explicit envy toward the rich who are held to be responsible for the plight of those below them. Unfortunately, envy cannot be contained. Once directed against the rich in other countries, it soon focuses on people who are better off in one's own country. The idea that it is evil to make personal economic progress takes hold of the people, and fear of being envied prohibits growth and encourages poverty. Sociologist Helmut Schoch says, One of the decisive factors in underdevelopment and non-development is the envy barrier or institutionalized envy among the population. Now when, as is quite patently the case, many of the politicians in developing countries make use of all their powers of rhetoric or persuasion for the crudest exacerbation of their people's envy of the rich industrial nations, even to the point of branding the latter as the cause of their own country's poverty, these people's sense of envy, to which their cultures already make them over-prone, is intensified. Thus the feeling and states of mind which inhibit development are not lessened but confined and given political sanction by the country's leaders. Biblical Alternatives to Foreign Aid The Christian cannot support the unbiblical practices of government aid. But this does not mean we have nowhere to turn. There is much that we can do. First, we can support Christian missionary activity to bring the gospel to the poor and build biblical principles into the lives of converts. This is the basic and indispensable requirement. Without regeneration, true cultural transformation is ultimately impossible. As these peoples conform their lives to biblical standards, their societies will experience the economic growth promised in God's law. Second, we should oppose the really unjust patterns of both trade and aid in our world. We should abolish trade barriers of all sorts and promote biblical law in all areas of government. Third, we may invest in those economies which abide by God's law enough to restrain from nationalizing our properties. Private capital, for many reasons, 
is more productive than foreign aid. It goes to producers, not governments, and thus does not concentrate political power. It is more personal and local. It is more likely to be handled responsibly in terms of profitable production rather than prestigious superfluity. And it is related to specific market conditions rather than the political goals of bureaucrats. Fourth, we can give to charitable causes for the relief of specific needs. As we saw in chapter 2, biblical charity works toward responsibility in the recipient. And being individual and uncoerced, it produces responsibility in the giver as well. Foreign aid is charity at gunpoint. Our state officials force us to pay for it through either taxes or inflation. It builds no moral character in either the givers or the receivers. Biblical charity is personal, prudent, and responsible. Because it is morally sound, it is economically sound as well. It genuinely enables us to bear one another's burdens and at the same time teaches the weak to be strong so that each one shall bear his own load. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.